in the last third of this tremendous prophecy, this gospel of Isaiah, 66 chapters in total. Remember, though, that these chapters are a summary overview of the prophetic ministry of the prophet Isaiah. He ministered for 50-plus years in Judah. He was there when the northern kingdom had just been taken captive completely and overrun and assimilated by the Assyrians. He was there when the Assyrians threatened the southern kingdom. He was there when Hezekiah almost died, but God um, saved Hezekiah and saved the nation from Assyrian invasion. And um, he was there when, though they had regrouped, uh, they faced a new power rising, Babylon. And the last, really, half of Isaiah is about the, the messages he gave to Isaiah as they were heading towards uh, discipline under Babylon. And so he's preparing them with a recurring message, much of it's similar, because they need to hear this message uh, so they can stand up under what will come. And then when they're in Babylon, many years later, they would have this word and record of the prophet. And many years after that, wherever the people of God would find themselves, even here in Overland Park 2017, we would have the message of the prophet, the timeless message. And much of what we read is Isaiah's message to the nation as a whole, calling for repentance as a whole. But it's, it is not to misunderstand. There is a believing remnant always in the midst. Uh, there are people who really do trust in God's salvation. They do really rest upon God's promises as they came to understand through Abraham. And that God was going to send the servant who would, unlike them, unfaithful servants, would be a faithful servant, Jesus, their representative. And so... It's to these people, this remnant within the nation, that he speaks these words that we read in these eight verses. It's a message for those who rest upon God's Savior. So I hope that's all of you. I hope you trust Jesus like that. And so for you, this will be another, yet another encouragement in the gospel. If you don't believe in Christ in that way, this is another wonderful opportunity for the Spirit of God, I pray, to open your eyes to see the message that is, said here by the prophet Isaiah, and it recurs. It's the good news that God gives sinners, that there is salvation through his servant Christ, and we must trust in him. Um, It's not a message that gets old, by the way, because anybody who believes this message pretty much wants to hear it again and again. Give it to me one more time, is what you're saying, if you really believe the gospel. You really know what the gospel means, because you know what it says about you and what we need, and it doesn't take long for us to get back to knowing what it says about you and what we need, because we know it's true, and we rest in it, and we celebrate it, and that's what this passage is meant to do. It's meant to go from us uh, to the world outside of us, and then to look to the full effect and future of what God is doing in redemption through Christ. Hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I I will read uh, verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, 
And I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they, they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the good news of your gospel. We are thankful for your repeated, consistent, recurring proclamation of salvation that we read in your word through your prophets and apostles. Please open the meaning of your word from Isaiah here this morning to us. Please compel us to a deeper devotion, a more fervent passion, a desire to obey you in reaction to your great grace shown. We thank you for the love that you have shown to us in Christ, the love that you uphold us with, the grace that you give us minute by minute because of Jesus and experienced through your Spirit's ministry, who we pray for. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. These eight verses really um, are pointed. They point right to those who do believe. As I mentioned, the book is written generally to the people of God, knowing that among those who claimed to be the people of God, there will be those who are in, we're all in need of repentance, but there'll be some who, when they hear the message of God's salvation again, their, their, hearts are a bit hard, their hearts are a bit hardened. It's not that they don't believe, but something has gripped them. Sin, disbelief, self-satisfaction, self-confidence, self-righteousness, whatever it may be. When they hear the gospel, they, they, they believe they know it, but they're ready to move on to something more important, something deeper. Uh, or, or something the more relevant, they may think. And so the message goes to the people as a whole consistently so that those hard hearts would be softened. But it's also true that in the midst of the people of God, there are those who, who are genuinely broken about who they are outside of Christ and know they need Christ, and they, they believe the gospel, that they, as sinners, can only be right with God by resting in the promises uh, of his servant, who we have seen realize in his person and work completed at the cross and confirmed when he was raised again and we rest in the finished work of Jesus in this way. And so for those people, the gospel will never ever get old to you. And he says here, listen and look. And he goes through different uh, ways of explaining similar things but also shows how it will go forth, the impact it will have beyond just us as a way to invigorate us, to compel us to a deeper devotion, a greater appreciation. Uh, 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 a sense of looking forward to what God will do in a desire to worship him because this is the God who has saved us and has called us to himself. Look at this listen and look uh, dialogue that kind of happens in the passage. If you look at verse one, listen to me. Verse one again, look to the rock. Verse two, look to Abraham. Verse four, give attention. Verse four, Give ear 
verse 6. Lift up your eyes and look. Verse 7. Listen to me. Listen and look. The Lord saves. That's the message of Isaiah 51, 1 through 8. More particularly, the message of the Lord's salvation, the gospel, it never gets old. It constantly goes forth, and it cannot be stopped. That's really how the passage divides up. He, re- he brings gospel renewal to the people once again, to us once again, showing how the gospel cannot get tired. Verses 1 through 3 display this. And these verses are deep. You may say, well, I don't see the gospel exactly. What do you mean? Well, let's look at the verse together, and you'll see uh, what he's calling us to, to recall. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Right away, in the context, we know the only righteous one is the servant. Not the servant Israel, but the servant, the Israelite, the perfect one, Christ. So when righteousness is written about people and their pursuit thereof, we understand this to mean we can only find that in God, in his provision. And that is sure because of what connects Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Here's where it connects. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now they know in antiquity, more than we recognize, when you see a statue, and there were lots of statues, uh, those statues weren't made the way we can make them today. Um, with, with, frame, you know, with rebar, and then we put plaster over the things that we might build over. They had to chunk off a big piece of rock, and then then hew it from that rock. And it was just a laborious, long, it took a long time to complete. So they understood what this meant, uh, to think in terms of something being carved out of a rock. So, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now what does this refer to? Look at verse 2. When we hear the rock, we usually think of Christ in, in the New Testament sense of that metaphor. This is something different. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. So, the rock from which we've been hewn, the quarry from which we've been dug, this is Abraham and Sarah. It says in verse 2, continuing, For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Remember the situation for the inhabitants of Judah. Uh, they were dwindling. They were getting pressed in by all sides because the nations around them had risen up and they'd gotten weaker and weaker. And God was, uh, by discipline, allowing them to be taken captive by Babylon soon enough. And so they were thinking of themselves as very insignificant, inconsequential, no power, no influence. God, how can we still be your people? But he's reminding them, don't forget, don't forget, look to the rock from which you were hewn into the quarry from which you were dug. Remember Abraham? He was only one. Only one. And now look at the nation you are. As beat down and beleaguered you may feel you are, remember what I've done in my promises to Abraham. He was only one. And look what it says. One when I called him. Now you know the story of Abraham. Abraham was, was not a believer in God. He called him out of pagans to make him his child. That call was irresistible. That call was him commissioning and placing his hand upon Abraham. And so, this is their father. This is our father in the faith. And it's from that rock that we've been carved. And we look at his life and we realize the grace that God poured out upon Abraham. It's all of grace. Um, He called him out even though he wasn't looking for God. He placed his favor upon him. He promised to him that he would make him a great nation. He would bless him. 
He would curse those who cursed him, bless those who blessed him. And he would multiply them. And then he says something that's always been plan A. There was no, Israel didn't work out, so now God went to the church. No, the plan was always that the church would be truly God's, Abraham's children, spiritually. And he says to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis, repeats it in 17 of Genesis, the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So he says to the inhabitants of Judah who are down, those who believe in his salvation, don't forget the rock from which you've been hewn. Abraham and Sarah, poor Sarah, well past childbearing years. And God still gives her the son of promise. The son of promise who prefigures, finally, the perfect Israelite, the servant, the second Adam, Christ. It's all of God's grace. The Abrahamic covenant and commitment by God is, is in, shell for, in a seed form, the gospel of God's grace through Christ ultimately. So he's telling the people to look to my covenant, my covenant of grace, my promise to you. I've been telling you about the perfect servant, your perfect representative, who I delight in, God says. Look to him. Back to the text. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. He, what God's doing here in these opening verses is he's renewing the people in the gospel of his grace. This is covenant of grace renewal. Verse 3, he doesn't stop just with the Abrahamic covenant. He actually goes to the full purpose of God's redemption. For the Lord comforts Zion, which is synonymous with his people, for he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. What this means is the land had been devastated by all the foreign invasions. It was only going to get worse. They were going to get displaced. Much of their stuff would be looted and carried off. And so they would look at this once promised land and it would, didn't look anything like what it, it was wasteland anymore. And he's saying essentially to the people of God, look at the wasteland. The waste places. God will make those wil- the wilderness, those places like Eden. The Garden of Eden. How do we know it's the Garden of Eden? The next line. Her desert like the Garden of the Lord. The restoration of God and redemption has to do with his redeeming people through the second Adam Christ, and part of his overall plan is to restore by redeeming the whole of the earth. Man is crowned, and then the earth is place for man to dwell, to offer up worship to God by his stewardship thereof and his caretaking of it. And he's going to redo all that, and man will be redeemed, and you're going to see that. It's all in the promises of God to you. This is total gospel renewal for these people who are in need of this encouragement at this time, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. This is great encouragement to us as believers to know what God is about, what he's doing, what he's done for us, and what he'll continue to do. Um, it's a message that we need repeated. We need it to be reinforced. We need to hear it on a regular basis. We know it's true, but it doesn't take us long to get away from it to forget that it's of God's grace that we are here, that we are saved, that we can live and move and have our being. There's a bridge that I remember walking over as I was a kid. It was at a camp that I would go to, and it was uh, a bridge that was about 25 yards long, and it was super strong. I mean, it didn't move. There was no question about its stability. I didn't doubt that. Uh, But it was over like a 35-foot ravine 
with rocks at the bottom, and there's just something about heights I've never really enjoyed. And I remember walking across, and I'd be fine, but then I'd get to the middle, and I'd find myself not looking down to see the ravine, but looking down to see if the bridge was still holding. Now, that's kind of silly because it's so strong. It's not going to fall. But I kept looking down. Now, the bridge wasn't offended that I was looking down because the bridge is just doing what it does, and it always does it and never fails at it. But me, I, I'm, I'm leery. I'm unstable. I need to see it, so I keep looking. I keep looking. I keep, it's, you know what? It was always there. And I got across every time I ever crossed it. Uh, there's a real sense in which we need gospel renewal like we need looks down at that bridge. The bridge is firm. It's strong. It's not going anywhere. You're going to get across fine. And God's not insulted that you have to look to the gospel again. In fact, he gives the gospel over and over time. He says, listen and look. Over and over. You can't look and listen enough at the message of his grace, the message of what he gives us through his servant, what we gain through Christ. This is the foundation for our life, so it makes sense we would check it regularly. You don't just leave the foundation. You keep building upon it, but you always check and see how it's there. And this is a foundation built by God, which will never falter. This message of the gospel that we are so uh, depended upon, the truth of it, is not something that was ever meant to be kept just for the inhabitants of Judah, thankfully, because that's why you and I enjoy salvation. But let us remember that this is a message God intends to be spread. And he spreads it primarily through his people. He saves his people. He's given us his word. We proclaim his word. He saves more people. That's how he does it. And that's how he's been doing it. The gospel spread through us shows how it constantly goes forth. Look at verse 4. Give attention to me, my people. Now listen. And give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people's. Ultimately, when he speaks of something going out from him, he's speaking again of the servant, still in context, that from Christ, who is uh, God incarnate, he will embody all that the law teaches, that we repeated today, at least in the moral section. And this will be evident to everybody when they see Christ. We proclaim what the law is, God's righteous standard, but we see what it is accomplished by Christ. No one uh, will be without excuse in this realm, Because everybody will know, as Christ has been manifested, he's talking in the future, we know that it's happened. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to all the peoples. It's in the same context that he talks about Abraham, and this makes sense, we should expect this, that he would then start to talk about the spread of the gospel, how the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant would reach people of all nations. That's always been God's intention. I love what Franz Dalich says in all of his commentary, but in this one simple line, the great work of the future extends far beyond the restoration of Judah, which becomes a source then of salvation to the world. Uh, What he's building back in 700 BC is still building stronger and stronger today as we've been able to see. Now I want you to imagine something just as a human being at a human level, and you're, you're Judah for a moment. You've already seen what Egypt has done in the past to you, what Assyria has done, now, we know we're responsible if we're the people of Judah, but ultimately, God has told us we're his people. Why would he let the Assyrians prosper so much, and they're so wicked? The Egyptians. What about the Babylonians now? They're no good either. What about the Persians and the Medes? And you start thinking of all the nations of the earth. You don't want them saved. God, judge them. I mean, that's so self-righteous, because we don't deserve, any more than Abraham deserved to be called out, to be called. 
But we just think that way as human beings. So now you have Isaiah the prophet telling you while you're undergoing duress and oppression from other nations. By the way, God's plan in this gospel that you believe in is not only for it to be limited to you, but all the nations of the earth will taste of my salvation. That's what I'm doing. I think I would, if if I was one of the faithful inhabitants of Judah, like this passage is addressed to, I'd have a hard time believing that. Lord, I've seen the Egyptians. They worship a lot of different gods. The Assyrians, are you serious? Come on, the Babylonians? But this is the beauty of what God has done in his providence. I know we think of these parts of the earth as as pretty barren of Christianity, but that would be a mistake. Now, Christianity is under great duress, but think in terms of what the Judaites were thinking, and then think of what it's like today. Assyria. Assyria is... Uh, mostly where Syria, modern-day Syria is today, uh, part of northern Iraq, Turkey, that would be old ancient Assyria. Think of Christianity in those places. Yes, under persecution, no doubt, but growing by all accounts. In fact, Syria has two million Christians. That's come to great light over the duress they've felt recently. Two million's not maybe a lot, but if you're someone back in Judah hearing that God's gospel is going to go there, you would be amazed. Two million Assyrians would come to know Christ, would believe in the servant. Turkey has two to 300,000 believers. Some of the hardest places for believers to live, yet God keeps growing his church even in those places. Egypt is an interesting story. I don't know if you've paid attention to what's happening in Egypt. But the church, Christianity, is... They went, underwent some persecution a few years ago. The Coptic Christians did. But Christianity on the whole, missiologists say, it's growing. The governmental change there, whatever, there's been some, uh, an eye away from what's happening in religion. And there are supposed to be over 12 million people who claim the name of Christ in Egypt. I mean, the Egyptians. I mean, think back. We've been studying Isaiah. Could you imagine if you're in Israel or Judah, thinking that the Egyptians would have 12 million who claim the name of the servant someday? Listen, look, the Lord saves. That's what he does. And he could do it anywhere. He's doing it anywhere. The Babylonians, that's where modern-day Iraq is now. Close to half a million. Even after all those Christians have had to leave Iraq because of persecution, there still remain 500,000 or so who claim the name of Christ. Even in Iran, the place where Persia was. There are supposed to be 370,000 people claim the name of Christ. There's a man named Joel Rosenberg who is a researcher. He's an author and a resident. Uh, He lives in Israel uh, year-round to try to document these things. He surveys missionaries who come in and out of those places. I know of of a missionary friend of mine that I went to college with. Um, They live in Turkey. Uh, They're under uh, a different heading as far as what their profession is, but they serve as an outpost for Christian missionaries that come through uh, and stay with them at times, and he's reporting, uh, he reports an incredible explosion of Christianity in Turkey and in Syria and in parts of Iraq and Iran. Iran. It's an amazing thing. We had a Lebanese pastor come and speak here at Redeemer in November, and he was sharing with us how he thinks Christianity is booming right now in the Muslim world. It's just not, you're not, that's not where the focus is when you think about Islam today, especially in America. But he's saying that there are more Muslims. He himself was Muslim, converted to Christianity, now a Christian pastor, and threatened by death all the time. But he, he really takes this passage seriously, everything it says, as we see. And he believes that 
the only reason why he thinks, the only reason why more Christians aren't there is because there aren't more people preaching the gospel there. Because people are wanting the gospel. That, that's exactly what this passage kind of lays out for us. You'll see it in a moment. Gospel spread through us. That's what we'll see. That's what God's doing. Verse 5 says, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples. And look at this line. Verse 5. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. People want salvation. Everybody wants salvation. Everybody knows something just isn't quite right. And they fill it with something in their lives. They fill it with their own intellect, uh, some other explanation, philosophical or religious. They want salvation. They know they need salvation. What they don't know until God reveals it is they want God. And God says here, the coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. My righteousness draws near. Again, whenever you see him sending his righteousness or going forth, drawing near, this is, refer- this is referring to his eventual sending of Christ when Jesus visits Jeremiah prophesied about this a lot in his prophecy, which comes a little bit later after the time of Isaiah. It's getting more and more, it's, it's as desperate as can be. The reason why Jeremiah is the weeping prophet is Isaiah could start to get some tears, but Jeremiah was living while they were literally taking stuff away in front of him. And Jeremiah prophesying said, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It's a constant look to Jesus' coming, and Jesus is fulfilling all these things spelled out in the Old Testament. But again, verse 5, the coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. God tells us to look at something else in this text as it relates to the gospel going out, and I want you to see it. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. Okay, so the heavens and the earth, look at them both. You see how beautiful they are. They were created by God. They exist. For the heavens, the second part of verse 6, vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. Hear it really plainly. As As old as the mountains are to us, as old as people may get to us, all of it, it comes and goes very quickly, super quickly compared to God in his existence. Get bearing on how long things last. They don't last long. That's why this message of the gospel, this message of faith in God and his servant resting in Christ's finished work is so critical and so crucial. It's important for us to be, to be anxious to share this because time is short The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, the last part of verse 6. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Now that verse should shock us a bit. This is why. God's righteousness will never be dismayed. It will never be violated. His justice will uphold it. It will always be the standard of the universe for all time. So you are either held up against that standard by your own righteousness or you're held up against the standard of his righteousness in his. It seems like a no-brainer as to which one you would want. But it's not just about our brains. It's about God enlightening us with his gospel that we would believe 
in Christ so that Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. Even if you think of Abraham, who was mentioned at the beginning. How was Abraham right with God? Because he did what he said? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. His obedience was evidence of his believing God. It's always been this way. But my salvation will be forever. Things are short, people won't live long, but his salvation's forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. What, a, what a, an important message to, be going, to go out. We should feel a certain um, urgency about the message. Not desperate like some would that if we don't do this, everybody, you know, it's all up to us. We're not saying that. What we're saying is if you get this, why on earth would you not get this out? Why would you not proclaim this from pulpits, in churches, in your families, in your neighborhoods? Listen, I don't want uh, to say this too softly. You really should share Christ with your friends. I mean, if you're really their friend, right? It should go from you to others. However, that may happen. There's courage for us, a reminder to compel us along these lines, the last two verses. Remember, this gospel that I'm sharing with you today that's in the text, that's the essence of God's word, that is the answer to our most fundamental dilemma, this gospel cannot be stopped. It won't be stopped. And we have courage given to us in verse 7 and verse 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. That's you, brothers and sisters. It's us. Fear not the reproach of man. Nor be dismayed at their revilings. I'm totally fine with not being offensive in your approach to sharing Jesus. Jesus deserves to be displayed in a beautiful way. I'm sorry, though. The gospel will offend because it starts with having to acknowledge you're a sinner without hope, save God's grace. So however you share the gospel, understand there will be an offensive element to it And if God's prepared the heart of the person you're sharing it with, they will have the right response based on the fruit of the gospel. If their heart's not there, they will be upset with you for it. But if there's no reaction either way, you're not telling them the gospel at that point, most likely. And if you say, well, you know, I'm working on my friendship with them eventually, okay, how long do you got to be friends with somebody to actually be the friend and tell them what the problem is? Understand that there will be reproach, there will be revilings. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Listen to me. Look to me. Look at verse 8. Again, time is short. There is an urgency that should be about us if we have been stewarded with the gospel, if we've been given eyes to see Christ as our righteousness. If we can, if God has opened our eyes to realize we cannot save ourselves in any way, shape, or form, but he's provided Jesus, and we must simply rest in the finished work of Christ. If you get that, that is a supernatural activity you could not have conjured, so go tell other people, because that's how you came to know. For the moth will eat them up like garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. 
but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation for all generations. You will not live forever, nor will your friends and your family and those who are around you. Let's be careful to be faithful in explaining what the good news of Jesus Christ is if it's gripped us like we say it has. Because I really believe if you know the gospel, when you understand what God has said through Christ, what he has said about us in Christ, it is something that will just burn a hole in you. You're just going to want to share that with someone. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be an evangelist who goes out and tells and proclaims this message to hundreds and hundreds. Just start with a few people that God's given in your, in your own sphere. For a lot of you in the sphere of your life, it might be spending a lot of time teaching your children the gospel. Not treating them like they're little unbelievers, but just that they grab hold of what this covenant is from a young age and you model that before them and you have a lot of opportunities to continue to, to bolster that message in their life. So that's very worthwhile. But there will be others that come into your sphere. Be, be sensitive to that and ask God for ways in which to just simply express to them this great message that we need to personally hear over and over again. In fact, I don't think any believer, any Christian who really understands the gospel ever really gets sick of hearing the gospel again, what it is that God has done to save us. I mean, I hope you would go uh, look in the bulletin and say, uh-oh, looks like Pastor Tony's talking about the gospel again. Let's go home. Uh, no, no, you are, of all people, the ones that need to come in because you will never say you're sick of hearing the message of the gospel if you really know the gospel. I kind of put it like this. Uh, I'm not a big fish person, although I loved it when Pastor Nathan has had a piranha a couple times, which, imagine this, I don't know if you've ever gone into his office for counseling, which I have many times, and I'm sitting there, and I see this fish devouring other fish behind me, and I'm trying to be peaceful and think about things that would make me feel peaceful. That's not the picture, but it's awesome. I mean, you should see, it starts small, this little piranha, when you buy it, and then you start feeding it fish. We stop at the pet store and get a bag of goldfish, and they're gone within minutes. I mean, you haven't seen anything eat like a piranha. But even a piranha will eat three or four goldfish and be like, okay, I'm full, and kind of stop. Goldfish don't do this. Goldfish don't have stomachs physiologically, so they just keep eating and eating and eating. So you'll feed a goldfish a good pinch, and it'll gobble it all up like it hadn't eaten in days. And then you wait five minutes, and you go back and do the same thing when all the particles are gone, and it eats and eats and eats like it hasn't eaten for days. I mean, it just can't ever get enough. Christians ought to be goldfish for the gospel. We should want more and more. And when it's not there, we want it again. And when it comes again, we're like, that's great. Give me more. I can never get enough of this because a little time goes by and it's only that amount of time that I have to contemplate why I need the gospel, so give it to me again. So at least, at least in the lives of believers, we have these means of grace he's given us. His word preached, which continually repeats the message of the gospel. The word represented, the gospel represented in the sacraments. This is just once a week. We need it more than that. I mean, be in your word. Be in the scriptures because you're going to see the repeated theme of God saving us through Christ, and you will never, ever get sick of this. And it will help you in so many ways. It's exactly what you need when you go through the, a week of temptations. Maybe a week of temptations where you gave in consistently. Well, that's the time you most need, again, to hear the gospel. I think what keeps us from loving the gospel or wanting to hear it over and over again is it's sin, ultimately. And all of us experience this. It could be sin like this. I have something in my life I believe the gospel. I know Jesus is my Savior, but something's gotten a hold of me. It could be any number of sins that we commit that we get addicted to or we give into. I don't want to give it up. I do love Jesus, but I don't want to give this thing up. And I go to church or I hear the gospel and I, I cringe a bit. You, the reason why you cringe is so beautiful. 
because you know it's so true what Jesus has done for you, and you're ashamed that you are still deciding to, to go and live this life that God's freed you from because you love that more than Jesus at that moment. And so the gospel, it, it convicts us, and that's good. The gospel, will, will, it'll break down that wall. It'll help us with obedience. It could be another thing that makes it hard for us to hear the gospel, and that is um, we become self-righteous. You know, things are going pretty good. You know, if I do, like the rich young ruler, if I do kind of an inventory, I haven't done most of these big sins. And so I sit in church and want to hear, you know, give me what I need to do now. Give me some more stuff I need to do. It, of course, there's plenty of things in the Word of God that give us direction. There's no doubt. But if you don't get the order right, you just become self-righteous. And you think, oh, I can give me, Pastor, give me some more things. I'm going to go do this this week. And you, so when you hear a message that, that harkens back to the heart of the matter, the gospel, you're like, oh, I'm ready to move on from that. Check yourself because you haven't done that well. You have not been that successful in these things. In any success you've had or any growth you've had in obedience is a fruit of the gospel in your life, not something you've done apart from God's gospel in some way. They're completely connected. I hope when you hear a message like this, listen and look, the Lord saves, you say, yes, again, give it to me some more. Because the message of the Lord's salvation, the gospel, it never, ever gets old. It constantly goes forth and it cannot, you can, you can see this, it cannot be stopped. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are cognizant of the refrain to listen and look. And we see that's where you aim to keep us in a listening and looking frame of mind because that's where real courage to stand up against opposition, against persecution, oppression, unbelief, That's where courage comes from, is looking and listening, basking in your gospel. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that they would be really encouraged by the words that you have spoken to us, that you have reminded us of, that we are to fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Lord, it is true that your salvation is to all generations and your righteousness is forever. We thank you for this through Christ. Amen.